0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at tidewaterac.com. probably passed it a hundred times without giving it much thought. The tall, slender monument in the median at 4th and Market Streets in downtown Wilmington too easily fades into the scenery as you drive up the busy road. While its pointed apex stands above the traffic light just a few feet away, the shadow of the bundled wires somehow undercuts its size. It's also situated between two of the most well-known and often controversial Confederate monuments in the area, George Davis to its west and the Kenan Fountain to its east. Although it's 28 feet tall and dates back to 1906, the obelisk carries a surprisingly understated presence considering the sizable memory it's meant to evoke the pillar is dedicated to one of the region's founding fathers, Cornelius Harnett. Once a prominent Wilmington merchant and supporter of Britain's rule over the colonies, Harnett would evolve into the leading revolutionary figure in the Cape Fear region, as rebellious sentiments against the crown spread through the colonies on the eve of the Revolutionary War. He was a son of liberty who would go on to defend North Carolina's independence from the British until it was overtaken in 1781 and he was captured as a prisoner. A moment that would ultimately seal his fate. Harnett's story charts the foundation of the Cape Fear region because he was among the first generation raised on its soil. So when it came time to fight for its freedom, or bend a knee to tyranny, he stood up and fought for the rights and representation of his neighbors and his home, right to the bitter end. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're flipping to a new chapter in our local history book for a look at the life of one of the most influential and important figures in the Cape Fear's history, Cornelius Harnett. This season, we've delved into the foundation of the Lower Cape Fear through the lens of its first settlements and how man's ambition And nature's might has shaped the region for the centuries that followed. But with these advancements came intense action and sacrifice from its formative residents, a truth Harnett knows better than anyone. He was a revolutionary patriot who's often been overshadowed by the flashier names in history's textbooks his defining allegiance to his homeland in North Carolina instead of its overlord in England was a position that he defended with vigor and resounding strength. But it was also one for which he would pay the ultimate price. As always, I will share with you his story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this new episode as we return to the age of rebellion for a look at the life and liberty of Cornelius Harnett, the man known as the pride of the Cape Fear. Cornelius Harnett was not the first of his name, to lead a life of defiance. He got his rebellious spirit honest from his father, Cornelius Sr., a noted troublemaker who you might remember from our Brunswick Town episode. Cornelius Sr. was a merchant in Dublin, Ireland, before he made the journey to North Carolina in 1720. He would become the second person to purchase land in the proposed town of Brunswick, In 1726, behind only Morris Moore, who founded the town. But his intentions for staking an early claim in the Cape Fear's first permanent settlement weren't exactly pure. You see, Cornelius Sr. had associated himself with former Governor George Burrington, and the two had gotten into a little bit of trouble and were indicted on charges of ransacking and assault at the home of the new governor in 1725. The only reason the men escaped a sentencing that could have drastically altered their lives was because they didn't show up. Cornelius Sr. had fled to Brunswick, where he was starting to build a life for himself, in a town where few would know to look for him. He started a business operating a ferry service at the Hallover, between Brunswick and Sugarloaf across the Cape Fear River. And he ran a lucrative tavern in Brunswick that served those traveling the region's only passageway to and from South Carolina. Despite wanting to lay low, he amassed quite a fortune for himself by the time the charges were dropped in 1728, paving the way for the Harnett name to be among the most notable and powerful in the young Cape Fear region. Just a few years before his death in 1742, Cornelius Sr. was also named the first sheriff of New Hanover County. His future revolutionary son, Cornelius Jr., was born on April 20th, 1723, before the family moved to Brunswick when he was three. In his work on Harnett's life, Historian Alan Watson notes that the young man would have bore witness to the growing rivalry between Brunswick Town and Wilmington, which, once it was established in 1739, would begin siphoning off the settlement's political and commercial influence from its perch 14 miles up the river. Unlike his father's contemporaries who migrated to the region from the various reaches of Europe, Harnett was raised almost entirely on the banks of the Cape Fear, an upbringing that would instill in him a true Carolinian identity that he would spend his life fighting for. He would get his first shot at taking up arms in defense of the region at the age of 25, when the Spanish conducted their attack on Brunswick Town in September 1748. As we detailed in our episode on the settlement, two Spanish ships anchored on the Cape Fear River on the morning of September 4th. The attack was part of a conflict between the British and the Spanish, and it caught the townspeople off guard, sending many of them fleeing into the woods with only what they could carry on their backs. The Spanish, in turn, came ashore and started ransacking the town, stealing and pillaging what they wanted. However, the next day, Captain William Dry began planning a counterattack on the Spanish by assembling a small regiment of locals, among whom was said to have been Harnett. The plan worked, and the colonists were able to drive off their invaders, and even sink one of their ships. In the violent scuffle. The attack on Brunswick town would be Harnett's first taste of fighting for his homeland, and it wouldn't be his last. In the years that followed, he, like much of the region, turned his sights away from his home in Brunswick and toward Wilmington, where opportunity was ripe for the taking. Although he would hold on to property in Brunswick town for most of his life he began taking a foothold in Wilmington and was almost instantly named an alderman of the town. The Harnett name held sway in the region, and having him at the head of the county with a thirst for prosperity and advancement was an attractive prospect for local residents. He supplemented his political life with work as a merchant like his father, and he even owned a rum distillery business, in the years leading up to the war. Most of what we know about Harnett today is almost exclusively limited to his political career, but even that is impressive on its own. He served on countless regulatory boards and committees and was even placed on the Royal Assembly in 1764, putting him at the heart of the legislative affairs between the colonies and the crown as rebellion was taking hold. In other words, the Harnett name was inescapable, as Wilmington built itself a reputation as an epicenter of the colony. But Harnett's legacy wouldn't truly start to kick in until Britain's tightening grip on the colonies took it one step too far. Again, an act of rebellion would play out at Brunswick Town, when the Stamp Act of 1765 left colonists fuming over new taxes levied on shipments coming in and out of the port. That following February, a group of colonists put Royal Governor William Tryon under house arrest in his own home when they learned that he was harboring a royal official, that they were hell-bent on persuading not to enact the new regulations. This time, Harnett was at the head of the mob, chosen to act as negotiator between the governor, whom he had been pretty loyal to up to that point, and the increasingly hostile colonists, who were demanding answers and action. During this time, Harnett was the chairman of the Lower Cape Fear's chapter of the Sons of Liberty, a secret organization started in Boston that monitored and coordinated the mounting opposition to the Crown's influence over the colonies. Paul Revere, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams were among the noted members of the organization in other colonies. Adams' reputation as the founder of the Sons of Liberty, and as a noted patriot involved in the Boston Tea Party, would be forever tied to Harnett's legacy thanks to Josiah Quincy Jr., who dubbed him the Samuel Adams of North Carolina. Quincy stayed with Harnett in March 1773, and the two men traded philosophies on the state of the colonies late into the night. Quincy was so taken by how much Harnett's actions reminded him of Adams that he bestowed upon him the flattering comparison that still persists in history's memory to this day. Harnett took that notoriety and respect from his peers into his next major tenure as part of the colony's first provincial congress in 1774. A secret assemblage of patriots gathered to create a governing body separate from the governor's assembly. It wasn't spoken about publicly just yet, but the colonists were starting to break away From the rule of the crown. He was also elected to head the Wilmington Safety Committee, a group organized to ensure there was an executive power enforcing the laws of the Provincial Congress. Under his leadership, historian Alan Watson said that Harnett and his committee were in charge of making sure that locals were loyal to the growing revolutionary cause by investigating opinions Policing loyalist sentiment, and even prescribing punishment for those found guilty of defying their agenda. While the Patriots' cause is celebrated today as noble, and it certainly was, this committee reads as ethically murky at best. In fact, it kind of sounds like a mafia, strong arming colonists into submission. But by 1775, Harnett and his followers were way past using a committee to nurture and maintain the county's foothold in the rebellious effort. They escalated their actions that July when he and a few other men burned Fort Johnston, a property of the crown and a real slap in the face to the final royal governor of North Carolina, Josiah Martin the governor was already well aware of Harnett's provocations and had previously said he and his conspirators, quote, stand foremost among the patrons of revolt and anarchy, End quote. By this point, the colonists were doing little to hide their open rebellion, and there was finally no reason to. The opening shots of the American Revolution were fired at Lexington and Concord in April 1775. The Cape Fear region would see its most substantial brush with the fighting in February 1776 at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, where patriots dealt a significant blow to the Loyalist effort in North Carolina. We detailed this pivotal battle in an episode earlier this year, in which we explained that the Patriots' victory over the British actually kept the Redcoats from linking up with reinforcements that were mobilizing in the Lower Cape Fear, effectively denying the Crown any Southern advancement for more than three years. Following the victory, the Provincial Congress met in April 1776 and passed the Halifax Resolves. The first official declaration of a colony's intent to seek independence from the British crown. What started with the Halifax Resolves, for which Harnett was Wilmington's representative, snowballed into more expressions of independence by other colonies, all leading to the signing of the Declaration of Independence just three months later. Harnett had the privilege of publicly reading the Declaration of Independence on the steps of the Halifax Courthouse on April 1st, an announcement that was met with cheers and even celebratory cannon fire. Now officially eyeing a future out from under the thumb of the crown, that meeting of Carolinian minds at Halifax also formed a Council of Safety to enact laws created by the Congress of Colonists. Harnett was selected as the council's president. But this wasn't just another figurehead post for the Wilmingtontonian. In his essay on Harnett's life, R.D.W. Connors said such an action made Harnett the first chief executive of the newly independent state of North Carolina. Quote Governor in all but name, he exercised greater authority than the people have since conferred. On their chief executive, and occupied a position of honor and power, but likewise of responsibility and peril. It's Harnett's signature that's on the document that designated North Carolina as an independent state, even before its first official governorship was given to Richard Caswell. I found no research that showed that Harnett was sore about being passed over for governor. And frankly, he already had too much going on, including being elected to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1777. It was a high honor to sit among the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, and Harnett would serve with distinction as a vocal proponent for the union of the states under one country. But his years of service on these boards and the exhausting tediousness of the Continental Congress's schedule was wearing on Harnett. He was getting older, and spending sunup to sundown at a desk was starting to take its toll. He also didn't like living in Philadelphia and missed the slower pace of life back in Wilmington with his wife and their home on Hilton Plantation but of even more pressing concern, was his health, which was starting to decline. Gout was a recurrent problem for the Patriot, and three long terms in Philadelphia did nothing to soothe his ailments. By February 1780, he would make his final trip home from Philadelphia. Although he had spent time away from Wilmington, his reputation as a leader of the rebellion in the region certainly preceded him and stuck around even when he wasn't in town. So much so that when the British forces, led by Major James Craig, finally made their way south and into Wilmington in early 1781, Harnett was at the top of their list of targets to capture. On word of their impending arrival, Harnett made his escape, but an episode of gout forced him to seek shelter in Onslow County, where the Redcoats were able to track him down. He was promptly arrested and thrown across a horse like a sack of meal, as many accounts have described it. After what must have been an excruciating ride back to Wilmington, he was confined to a roofless blockhouse as a prisoner in his own town, the town he had now spent decades fighting to protect. Despite making enemies amongst the town's loyalist population, even they saw the mistreatment of Harnett as too much to bear and advocated for his release. But by the time the British gave in to such demands, it was too late. Subjected to near constant exposure to the elements, his declining health only escalated, and just a day or so after his release, he died on April 20th, 1781, his 58th birthday. His will stated he wanted a simple burial in a plot at St. James Episcopal Church's graveyard at Fourth and Market Streets. He also instructed that his headstone be engraved with the following message quote, Slave to no sect, he took no private road, but looked through nature up to nature's God. End quote. Through the decades, as textbooks recounted the stories of the country's founding fathers and their efforts to break away from British rule, few mentions have been made to the contributions of Cornelius Harnett. He may have not been on the front lines with a musket in his hand fighting the Redcoats or in the room where it all happened with the likes of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. But in the history of Wilmington and North Carolina, Harnett played an even more important role than a soldier on a battlefield he stood at the forefront of nearly every effort to secure North Carolina's identity as a state and not just another taxable property in Britain's ledger. He fought the battles that came before the war to ensure that when it came time to draw their weapons, North Carolinians were sure about who they were and what they wanted. So the next time you're in downtown Wilmington and happen upon the obelisk to Cornelius Harnett's memory, maybe take a moment to appreciate the physical embodiment of the towering legacy he left behind. Joining me now to talk further about the life and legacy of Cornelius Harnett is one of our uh, frequent guests, Chris E. Fondville Jr. He's a local historian in town, and he has come and talked to us about a number of topics. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Chris. Oh, I love being with uh, you on these
1: podcasts, Hunter. I look forward to um, you know being a part of the, the programs. Absolutely! As yeah. you want
0: me to be. I know. I'm excited to have you back because this actually kind of takes us back to the beginning. Um, our first story that we ever did together was about Samuel Jocelyn, and he is buried at St. James Episcopal Church uh, graveyard. And uh, he uh, he's buried, or he was, I guess, technically buried uh, near what is still Cornelius Harnett's grave.
1: Yeah, we don't know where Samuel Jocelyn was buried. Mm-hmm. Only that he was buried, uh, as you said, at St. James Episcopal Church's graveyard. Mm-hmm. Um, But the grave that marked um, Cornelius Harnett's um, final resting place is still there. And still legible. Well, that marker was erected in the 1960s. Oh, okay. I
0: didn't know there was a different one. Yeah, yeah. the
1: original marker apparently was a flat stone that after a while was just unreadable. Hmm. Uh, You go to St. James Episcopal Church's graveyard today, you know, the acid rain and the environment has just taken its toll on a lot of the flat stones. And so uh, that was uh, replaced a couple of times, the last time in the 1960s. But Interesting. It's a, but it's a beautiful sandstone marker and so legible. And apparently the stone that they used in the 1960s is exactly the same stone when they replaced it the first time.
0: Oh, wow. So they
1: they went after really high-quality stone for his for his grave marker.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there's been many efforts to kind of memorialize him or at least honor him. Um, And, you know, that the other one is right across the street with uh, the monument that features his name. And, you know, we've hosted a few walking tours of downtown Wilmington, and we walk past that, because we tell the story of Samuel Jocelyn, and we acknowledge Harnett's grave. Um, but I don't think a lot of people see that monument until we kind of point it out to them. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. You just so, It's so easy to drive past, um, just kind of flying up market. Well, I mean, why, why do you feel that Harnett's legacy isn't as talked about as, honestly, I think it should be? In, in large part because we Don't have manuscript material about him. What we
1: know about his life and his activities, and particularly his political career, comes from the colonial records of North Carolina. Uh, Beyond that, there there are just no personal letters. So we don't know much about him personally or or his wife uh, and his life at Maynard that later becomes Hilton Plantation. Um, but that is such a beautiful monument. So nice. 28 foot tall um, marble obelisk. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, today, as you said, people fly by going, you know, 35 miles an hour and the stoplight and the wires obscure it. Uh, but when it was erected in 1906, on his birthday, by the way, yeah. April 20th, mm-hmm. um, the world was totally different. The plaza was larger because Market Street was just a two-lane road. Uh, there were very few automobiles in Wilmington. So if you look at early postcards of that, that vista along 4th and Market Street, you see wagons and horses. And so it was a much quieter, slower-paced world, and people would have stopped to acknowledge mm-hmm. uh, the heroes of the Lorcae Fear from the Revolutionary War era, and particularly Cornelius Harnett. Mm-hmm. But you know what? If Cornelius Hornett had lived in Massachusetts instead of North Carolina, his name would be up there with John Adams and Samuel Adams and, and John Hancock. Mm-hmm. Um, but North Carolina uh, just has not paid as close attention to him as perhaps we should. And so that's why I'm glad to be here with you today to talk about Harnett, because he deserves you know, the credit and the uh, uh, the recognition.
0: Well, and he's so active during that time. I mean, he, you know, we talked, and I even included this in the story that, you know, I I couldn't include every committee he was on because he was just constantly active. I mean, and that's partially because, as you mentioned, what we know about him is really his political career. They kind of charted that, you know, at every point. But he's so active leading up to the, you know, the revolution that, you would think that he would be more recognized because he was making things happen. If any one man uh, should
1: be acknowledged for the creation of the state of North Carolina, it's Cornelius Hornet. Uh, he was the leading figure in the colony of North Carolina in the days leading up to the American Revolutionary War. Um, And then, of course, he got active in uh, helping to write the Constitution for the state of North Carolina. And he served North Carolina in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Um, And he he was was like Forrest Gump almost in the political world. (laughs) He was everywhere. He served on every committee.
0: It's kind of hard to believe he had time to do all that, just looking at a list of it, because it's just – it's so dense. I mean, he was—he had his fingers kind of in everything,
1: in, in everything. Um, but you know, we have no portrait of him. We I mean, have there's no few, picture. That's crazy to I me. Mean, no, no little miniatures on ivory. No full portraits of him um, from the descriptions. Uh, he was about my size. Uh, I'm—I was five foot eleven in my prime. I'm now down to five ten. I'm shrinking <laughs> as I'm getting older. But they said he was five foot nine, very slender. But we have no image or engraving of him or his wife, Mary. Um, But he was into everything. You know, he uh, grew up at Brunswick and was a businessman down there, uh, a merchant there. But as Brunswick gave way to Wilmington, he moved up to Wilmington by 1750. But he was so well-respected and so noted that immediately he was elected an alderman to the uh, town commission, and he served on that for, for 21 years. And then, of course, he served on the, uh, the Provincial Council. Uh, this was sort of a, a, a body that sort of ran counter to the General Assembly, yeah. Royal General Assembly. Uh, and then he became a member of the General Assembly. And, he's, and everywhere. He's, every, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Halif- he wrote the Halifax Results or chaired the committee. Which we'll come back yeah. to. I know, but he's a. Uh, it's it's and he was a rum distiller. I love
0: that. He, and he has he has hobbies. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a. It's it's really impressive. And you know, we don't know much about him as a person. But I mean, was there ever any impressions given of you know what it was like to be around him? Who, what kind of person he was? A, a little bit. We have a couple of comments, and from
1: them, um, we would say he was a little rough around the edges. They would have said in those days that he was probably not quite as refined a gentleman as you might have found elsewhere in the in the community or in the colony. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, not much more than that. And that might have been a comment from one of his, I don't know, uh, someone who didn't like him
0: very much. True, we don't this was know. a volatile time. So <laughs> Right, it was.
1: And there were loyalists. Uh, that he made enemies with um so you know not everyone in the community was his friend not everyone in the colony or even the state was his friend but that would have been true of course with anybody
0: yeah because you know as much as he was you know and i wrote this that he was really a part of that he was really part of that first generation that was raised here you know his 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 father came here and so many other people did but he was raised in this area for the majority of his life.
1: Uh, the Harnett, Cornelius Harnett Jr., mm-hmm. who's the namesake, of course, of his father, who came here in uh, 1726 mm-hmm. when Harnett was only three years old, uh, about the time that uh, Brunswick Town was founded. Yeah. And so he lived the first, what, 24 years of his life in Brunswick Town. So Brunswick Town uh, and then Wilmington, uh, the Lower Cape Fear, and Harnett
0: matured together. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the original Cape Ferians. What was the benefit for Wilmington to have a voice like that for it as all of this is happening? I mean, he's going to these massively influential meetings of Congress and, and all these things. What's it like for him to be representing Wilmington, I and mean, what does it do for Wilmington? Does it make it more prominent? Does it make it more important to the colony?
1: Well, I think it, yeah, I think it does get a lot of credibility but Harnett was not the only one. He was one of the leaders. Yeah, yeah. But again, you had John Ash, you had Robert Howe, you had uh, you, know, you had others. Um, but Wilmington already was becoming uh, the the hub of commercial activity in the southern part of the colony, and and then the state. Uh, but now you've got leading political figures uh, who are helping to shape the rhetoric. Of the revolution, of helping t- uh, Americans and specifically people who live in the lower Cape Fear, uh, sort of come to terms with um, uh, being a part of this movement that uh, ultimately would lead to a break with Great Britain and then independence. Um, it's hard to quantify loyalism, but. Uh, a large percentage of Americans uh, in North Carolinas still were loyal to the, to the crown. And, in fact, if you read the literature, the, the political discourse uh, as published, even into 1776 uh, or well into 1775, uh, Harnett and Ash and Howell all say, we're loyal British subjects. Mm-hmm. We just have political and economic disagreements, grievances with the crown that we have for about 10 years now tried to get redressed so they're professing loyalism to the government but at the same time uh, things are unraveling and they are behind the scenes sort of helping to shape the the policy shape the ideology shape the language uh, of the anti-government movement um, that you know ultimately
0: will lead to the revolution so I guess Harnett and, and all of those people kind of proved that we weren't just producing tar and turpentine. We were starting to turn out political leaders in this time. And, and you know, Wilmington was being put on the map for that as well. And so I think that's an important factor of, of what they're contributing to this conversation.
1: Uh, absolutely. And um, some historians, Alan Watson, my former colleague at UNCW, would tell you, other than John Harvey, who was the president of the uh, uh, provincial uh, congress. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, Cornelius Harnett was the most important man in in shaping uh, the, the creation of what would become the state of North Carolina. He has been called the pride of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Josiah Quincy from Massachusetts, traveling uh, along the Atlantic seaboard in 1773, spent a night with Harnett at his plantation at Maynard. For the most part, it's known as Hilton Plantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the intersection of the Northeast Kayfier River and Smith's Creek. Quincy spent a night with Harnett in March of 1773 and was so impressed that he called in the Samuel Adams of North Carolina. So that's cool. that's, that's, that's quite high praise. A, a high praise indeed <laughs> coming
0: from one of the leading revolutionaries uh, in New England. I bet that was an impassioned conversation at night that they had, you know, just sitting either by the fire or sitting on someone's porch or something and having some of that rum that he was distilling. And uh, <laughs> I'm
1: just going to say the same thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, they were drinking they some were of Arnett's
0: rum. They were. And they were. I'd love talking to have the, 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 the uh, recipe for exactly. that. Exactly. They were they were talking about, you know. All those things that would come to fruition just a few years later, I imagine it was an impassioned conversation. And
1: and Quincy, in part, is trying to drum up support in the other colonies for the revolutionary movement. So he was so impressed with Harnett and so pleased that uh, there were leaders uh, in Wilmington and in the lower Cape Fear like Harnett, who those in New England could depend upon. So, uh, in fact, Quincy – Asked Harnett to uh, to form a committee of correspondence so that they could keep in closer touch with each other and North Carolina with the other colonies. And
0: th- that was absolutely crucial. A little intelligence ring. Uh, exactly right. So you and I have discussed on a previous episode, uh, the Battle of Morse Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, Harnett was not there. He is getting older by the time the the war starts. Um, But after that battle, which effectively kept the British from advancing to the south for several years, what kind of role did Wilmington play and what kind of role did Harnett play in, you know, the revolution that was going on in other colonies? Uh, Well, of course, uh, the battle
1: uh, suppressed loyalist activity in Mm southeastern North Carolina. It staved off the British campaign, the Southern campaign, that was supported by the Crown in 1776, and as you know, they didn't come back for almost four years yeah. because of of the battle. They whipped them good, basically. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> Loyalists took a licking. Yeah. Um, but what that the other thing that that did it, it greatly emboldened the Whigs. Uh, you know, we can fight and we can win. Now that was a civil war battle, little C, little W, because mm-hmm. of course it pitted. Uh, American Whigs against American loyalists. Mm-hmm. There were very few British uh, army officers there. Uh, but when the British Army finally arrived shortly after the battle, the spring after the battle, um, they were totally discouraged and then left to go attack Charleston. So the Southern campaign kind of fell apart. But the main thing that the victory at Morse Creek Bridge did, and this is where Wilmington comes in, Uh, was the Halifax Resolves Mm -hmm. meeting just six weeks after the uh, American Whig victory at Morse Creek Bridge um, in Halifax, North Carolina. uh, The North Carolina Provincial Congress, uh, the members appointed Cornelius Harnett, right, of Wilmington again. (laughs) He's He's (laughs) so popular. He's on every committee. Uh, He chairs the committee that writes the resolutions that are the Halifax Results, which basically um, instructs North Carolina's delegates to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia to vote in favor of independence. And that's why we claim to be first in victory, because we were the first colony to put that in writing. Now, other colonies soon follow suit mm-hmm. and they've given verbal commitment to independence, but we're the first one to actually put it in writing with the Halifax resolves. April 12 seventeen seventy-six. In fact that date is so important. It's on our state flag it to this is, day. Yep. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Harnett
0: was there. I mean so Harnett was there. Yeah. It, I mean it all goes back to Harnett. Which is impressive. Um but you know after that and we we move forward to the um you know you're moving forward through the war. He's in Wilmington, he stepped back a little bit, he's not as active. Um, At least politically, I guess. Um, And then when it comes time for them to make their move on Wilmington, they go looking for him. Uh, They do. Now, he's aged. Mm -hmm.
1: Life expectancy then was about 52 years of age in the South. And that's about his age. He's in his 50s by now. Right. He's in his 50s. So he just couldn't withstand the rigors of field duty. So he's not a combatant. But he's serving just as important a role as any of the soldiers, um, politically. And as you know, he would serve several terms with the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, although he didn't like Philadelphia, was <laughs> uh, a North Carolina boy. Uh, he just he said well, it, was, it was too expensive. It was dirty. It was it was loud. He just he thought it was kind of a Las Vegas sort of a place. So. <laughs> Even though you know he did his duty mm-hmm. he, he served the Continental Congress, but he never liked it but his final trip back um, in 1780 uh, in uh, um, he, he was glad to be coming home yeah and but um, when James Henry Craig uh, a British army officer captured Wilmington in January of 1781. Uh, in support of General Charles Earl Cornwallis's Carolina's campaign, um, he wanted they wanted to capture Wilmington as a supply base and um, a place where Cornwallis could retreat if he got into trouble. And as you know, he did after the Battle of Dead. Guilford Courthouse in March of 1781. Cornwallis, although they were victorious in the battle, were so badly bloodied uh, and battered that Cornwallis retreated with his army down the Cape Fear Valley. And then uh, got to Wilmington in early April and stayed here for, for 18 days. Yeah. But in the meantime, Craig wanted to get the ringleaders of the revolutionary movement who lived in Wilmington. And that included William Hooper, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. John Ash, uh, and Cornelius Harnett. He wanted those three men. Hooper escaped to Hillsborough. But – Craig captured John Ash, and he captured Cornelius Harnett. Harnett uh, tried to uh, flee. He got as far as James Spicer's house in Onslow County, but he was suffering terribly with gout, and maybe there were some other medical issues. But he got that far, but Craig's men tracked him down and got him, and they said that he, they treated him so disrespectfully that they tied him up and threw him over the back of a horse like a sack of meal. And then they brought him back into Wilmington. Not just from Onslow County. And he's just thrown over the back of a, of a horse, and then they drag him back into Wilmington. And then Craig throws him, reportedly, into a roofless blockhouse, which may have been directly across from the Burgwin Wright House at Third Market Streets. And there he's exposed to the elements, already in poor health, uh, finally, friends, including some Loyalist friends, apparently, intervene to secure his parole, uh, but he's in such bad health that he dies on April 20th, 1781. He was 58 years old that day.
0: What a terrible birthday gift. Just such a sad ending. It is, because, you know, as we've talked about so much, he was so active leading up to it, and then you get to the end of it, you know, or near the end of it, at least, of the of the war, and, and he— doesn't make it to the finish line. And yeah. that's sad. I mean, my, my question, or at least kind of what I took away from that is, what kind of void does it leave Wilmington in that first chapter of its independence to not have that voice anymore? Does, I mean, does do other people step up? Other people stepped up, and I think encouraged by Cornelius
1: Harnett, encouraged by the voice, encouraged by the activities of Cornelius Harnett. he sort of... Uh, He set the road toward independence of North Carolina. He paved the road for the creation of the state of North Carolina. Uh, If any one person should be given credit for the creation of the state of North Carolina, it should be him. You know, he was the chief executive officer of the state, he was essentially the governor of North Carolina. If not in name, Mm -hmm. that would be Richard Caswell. Mm -hmm. But uh, he signed the document that created the state of North Carolina.
0: That's a heck of a legacy.
1: It's, it's a wonderful legacy and uh, we should just
0: be so proud to call him one of our own. Absolutely. And you know, I would encourage you, whether you're taking a Cape Fear and Earth walking tour with Chris and Beverly and I, or you're just walking around downtown, you know, walk over and look at that monument. It is, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's, it's slender. It's kind of just kind of there, but it has a timeline of important events right before the, the establishment of the region all the way up to the Revolutionary War. And it is meant to honor him. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to go check out if you've never seen it. Well, and just 50 feet away is his grave. Is his grave. Right. Yeah. You could take a Harnett field trip. You know, just walk downtown and see. Well, there you go. That's what we should do exactly. for our next field we'll trip. Let's do a Cornelius Harnett field trip. We'll just go stand out there and just admire <laughs> the two monuments. All um, right. Um, well, Chris, thank you so much for coming and talking about Harnett, and I'll have you back for another episode soon, I'm sure. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Cornelius Harnett. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday for our final episode of the season. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CF Unearthed. Or you can email me directly at Capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content from each episode, and this week, I'm gonna be sharing a gallery of photos of Harnett's monument in Wilmington and his house at Hilton Plantation. And don't forget to sign up for the Kate Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every week. In it, I include a link to the new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at hunter underscore wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsall9.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.